Hi, I'm James Lawrenson, Deputy Director of the Australia-China Relations Institute at the University of Technology, Sydney. Welcome to the ACRI Podcast. For about a year now, there's been heated debate in Australia about Chinese international students on our university campuses. I believe they now total more than 150,000. In 2017, media reported on four incidents involving Chinese students protesting Australian lecture content. Some commentators have claimed that Chinese students spy or protest on behalf of the Chinese government, or are being brainwashed by Chinese language media in Australia. Today, I'm joined by Fran Martin, Associate Professor and Reader in Cultural Studies at the University of Melbourne. Fran's currently leading an Australian Research Council project following more than 50 female students coming to Australian universities from China and interestingly tracking them from before their departure to and after their graduation in Australia. Fran's also a fluent Mandarin speaker, having spent two years studying Chinese language and literature at Beijing Second Foreign Languages Institute and East China Normal University. She's also spent two further years researching in Taiwan. Welcome to the program, Fran. Thanks, James. Fran, I thought we might kick off um, with finding out about your research project, which is fascinating. So can you just um, describe for our listeners what motivated you to start researching Chinese students in Australia? What was the background? Sure. Um, well, I'm, I work in an Australian university, as you said, the University of Melbourne in the arts faculty there. And I've been there sort of, I did my PhD there, I've been there over a kind of a number of years. And like many academics, I basically noticed over this time that more and more students from China were coming into our classrooms and I was meeting them as undergraduates, I was meeting them as PhD students and I just started to wonder what's it like, you know, what, how, how does it feel on a kind of personal and subjective level I guess to move from one country to another for a degree program like that and partly my thinking about that was informed um, by my own experience, um, as you just mentioned. After um, I completed secondary school, I went straight off as a 17-year-old and completed non-degree courses, much more relaxed kind of um, <laughs> study, just, just language study, um, than most of these students do um, in China. So drawing on my own memories of that time is, I guess, really like kind of quite a formative time for me as a person between the ages of 17 and 19 to be overseas like that in such a different kind of right. place. And I thought, okay, that was kind of quite full on for me at the time in the late 80s, early 90s in Beijing and Shanghai. Um, what's it like for this generation of students? Um, how does it compare? Yeah. So Fred, is there anyone else in Australia doing this kind of research or are you it? <laughs> There's certainly lots of people researching international education in Australia and there are people researching um, Chinese student experiences in various um, different kind of aspects and different kind of ways um, and some very good work coming out by a number of um, young scholars particularly. Um, I'm not aware of any other sort of longitudinal ethnographic project like mine which has such a large um, participant sample though. And, and what does ethnographic mean, friend? It means, it's a term that comes from um, disciplines like anthropology. It means um, studying a people, a group of people, trying to understand their experience of themselves in the world um, by immersing yourself as much as you can in the kind of life world that they have created themselves as a group. Mm. 
Okay. And your focus particularly on female students. Um, what's the story there? Why, why the focus? Well, um, I guess academically, intellectually, my own background is in sort of gender studies, sexuality studies, that kind of area. So I'm always interested in gender. Um, then there's a kind of background issue which is really interesting. When I was starting to think about this project and looked into the statistics, I found that there are more female students than male students going abroad from China for study in general. Um, and we had some statistics from the Chinese Ministry of Education last year which revealed that in fact 60% of students leaving China for study are female. And when we think about the fact that in the birth cohorts of the current generation, men outnumber women, yep. that means that there's a quite a marked mm. predilection for female students rather than male students to go abroad. So I started to think, why would that be? Mm. Uh, so that's mm. one thing. Another thing is thinking about the generationally specific experience of young women, middle class urban young women in China today. You know, the existing scholarship tells us that they're, they've got particular kind of contradictions um, in the ways in which gender is understood and particularly feminine gender is understood in China. And these are contradictions that come to bear on young women like this, particularly as they go through their 20s. So this is what I've um, kind of theorised as a contradiction between, on the one hand, seeing yourself as, you know, generally their only children, mm. they're the recipient of um, parental support for their education, for their, for their career building. So seeing oneself as a kind of independent, powerful, individualised subject going, going ahead and making a strong career, getting a good education, mm. being globally mobile, you know, whatever. And on the other hand, as you progress through your 20s, a kind of what some sociologists in China have seen as a gender re-traditionalisation after the, you know, the years of high socialism, which is pushing women into marriage and family focus with a use-by date, right, before you turn 30 is yeah, the ideal. Yeah, we've seen a lot of this recently, as in just the last couple of months, haven't mm. we, with this Me Too movement in China? Right, 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 yeah, so that's one manifestation. Certainly feminists and, and young women in China are often quite critical, you know, of this of this social pressure mm -hmm. to, to marry by a certain time. They point out it gives them less time than their, their um, male counterparts to build a career, to kind of advance themselves professionally before suddenly, you know, you're being told you're going to be a leftover woman if you don't get married quickly. Right. So I just yeah. wondered yeah. what a number of years studying in Australia or anywhere, you know, outside China would do to the way that they negotiate those contradictory pressures. Well, Fran, I think you've motivated everyone to read your research now. Um, let me move on to the next question. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us something about these students that are arriving on Australian shores. Well, I guess something that prompts me to ask you this is that the, the, the line we often hear about these students are that they are brainwashed. Um, Clive Hamilton, in his book um, Silent Invasion, recently said that he asked some people in China about the younger generation, and some said, and I quote, with a dismissive snort, brainwashed. Others said that some young people are able to distance themselves from the lifelong propaganda, but they are hard to find. Clive himself said that tr the trick is to keep Chinese brains abroad patriotic. It's not so hard when those brains have since kindergarten been subject to the systematic brainwashing of the patriotic 
patriotic education campaign. So, friend, the students you're meeting and you're talking to, you're doing detailed ethnographic research with, mm. um, tell us a bit about them. Does that, mm. do, do they sound like that description? Mm. Um, well, the first answer, I mean, the, the short answer is no, but, there, <laughs> but there's, a, there's a bit of a backstory. I mean, I think it is interesting to compare generationally, say, my contemporaries, I was born in 1971, so the people that I knew in China when I was studying there in the late 80s were rather different to the current generation. I mean, it is, it is true to say that the patriotic education campaign has had an effect on young Chinese people in the current, say, the post-1990 generation. That's, that's, not, that's not untrue. Right. So they're likely to be perhaps slightly less reflexive about patriotism, slightly, that you know, patriotism is quite sort of trendy perhaps for, for parts of that generation in ways that it kind of was, but it was also kind of a little bit different from maybe earlier generations um, who, who might have been patriotic in slightly different ways. Mm. But having said that, um, students are generally speaking smart people, right? They're, <laughs> they're educated. They're, they're not cultural dopes. I mean, I don't think anyone is... You know, so stupid as to simply be taking on a government line and never questioning mm, that. Mm. What the students in my study often say to me is that, and I ask them directly about this. I say, you know, what, how would you gauge your own level of patriotism or of nationalism? What you know, what do you think about um, the, the motherland and so on? I ask them this at, at regular intervals throughout their study here, and they'll often say something like, "Well." I really do love China in the way that I love um, and feel loyal to the school that I went to, or I love it the way I love my family. And if somebody outside of that school or family or nation says something defamatory, mm. of course I'll defend it. And I love the culture, I love the people, I'm homesick, I miss you know the food. So in those ways you could call me patriotic. But in another way I would separate that love for country sometimes separate it from necessarily love of the government or love of the party. So they're very able to be, um, in our conversations, to be critical of the leadership, to be crit if they feel you know, critical on particular points, to be critical of the way the party acts in, in some situations. So mm -hmm. they can separate out that kind of cultural or familial kind of feeling of nationalism from uncritical kind of brainwashed knee-jerk support of everything that the regime is is going to do or is going to say so we have quite interesting discussions about a whole range of you know quote unquote sensitive topics and they have a whole range of opinions you know so, which range from support of the regime more or less um, in some I would say a minority <laughs> of cases are uncritical support and most people have a much more negotiated much more complex view of the political system, kind of like you might find among, say, students in Australia. Yes, if you ask right. them, what do you think of the current governing regime, you'll get a range of responses. Right. Okay. Friend, it's great for me to hear someone's actually asked Chinese students these questions. I remember when I was reading through a lot of media reports in the second mm. half of last year, there was a lot of talk about Chinese students, mm. but it shocked me how few reports actually asked mm. Chinese students these right. questions. Right, So right, it's good right. someone has actually done that. <laughs> Next question. Um, I mentioned in the introduction that one of the fascinating parts, and I guess one of the challenging parts of your research as well, was that you were in touch with these students before they came here. Mm. Um, so given that, can you tell us about some of their, their expectations, mm. hopes, um, what did they imagine studying in Australia would be like? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, they were, I met 30 of my participants before they left China and um, 
they were really excited and hopeful, um, apprehensive in some ways, you know, are there really mosquitoes as big as your fist, <laughs> spiders everywhere, you know, do the kangaroos bite, this kind of, this kind of thing, <laughs> semi-joking of course. Um, but in terms of their hopes, they were hoping to make strong friendships with local students and kind of expecting to. I mean, mm. when you think of you're going to go overseas for three or four years or, or longer, clearly one of the motivations is like cultural exchange. You know, you're not only going to be doing that for a degree. Um, so they were looking forward to that. They're looking forward to, in their words, I, I wouldn't use these words myself, in their words, integrating into Australian society. This, <laughs> right. was, this was like a phrase that kept coming up right. from them. Okay. Um, they were keen to integrate and yeah, they yeah, said, yeah. we want to integrate into yep. Australian society. Yep. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so through friendship, through work opportunities, I mean, they're aware of the graduate working visas, so they're hoping to get opportunities to work in uh, what they call local businesses, which kind of I translate in my mind as uh, like non-Chinese-run businesses yes, while yeah. they're here mm-hmm. um, in the in the areas of their specialisation. So if you're studying finance, you maybe want to work for you know a financial corporation or you know studying accountancy, you want you want to be an accountant somewhere. So mm. using their specialisations from their degrees to get professional work experience in Australia in so-called, you know, local companies. Mm, Okay. That's what they wanted, Fran. Mm. Um, What was their actual experience as you Mm. tracked them through their degree? Were were these expectations met or a bit of a Mm. mix or or largely Uh, not? It's it's a bit of a mix, but it is largely not. I, I would say in terms of social interactions... I've got a group, of, the core group is 50 students, so there's there's six others that I'm also kind of following, but the core group is 50. So in that 50, there's about five or six students who are exceptional. They're extremely extroverted. They're extremely confident, I guess, in themselves. They're extremely, like, not scared of mucking up in, 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 their, in their meeting new people. So those few have been amazing and extraordinary in the sense of almost as soon as they arrived... They made friends with a whole diversity of people across cultures, across locals, other international students, whatever, and have really just enjoyed their time. Most of those are still here. Mm. They're, they're kind of, they've, they've got really diverse social relationships. But they are a minority. And I'd say that's a temperamental thing. Like in any, in any group of students, you're going to have some who are incredibly extroverted and able to do this. The majority have found barriers in their way. They haven't, they're very disappointed about not being able to easily make local friends. Um, they're worried about their level of English and feeling like that's hindering them. Like not only kind of linguistically hindering them, but making them feel underconfident to approach people and try to sort of get a deeper level of engagement. Mm. Um, they're also almost universally, I would use the word excluded from the kinds of work opportunities post-graduation that they were hoping to have um, in the sense that Australian banks, financial institutions, other professional um, kind of workplaces like that very commonly require permanent residency or citizenship as a condition even of doing an internship, mm-hmm. let alone getting a job. So they, they kind of didn't know that before they came. Um, and students end up not then being able to find employment in their area, in areas of professional expertise. And working in sales, working in real estate, working in um, hospitality within the Chinese ethnic economy. Mm. So that gives them kind of like a type of work experience, but it's low skill and it's not what they were hoping for and it doesn't allow them to practice their English in the ways that they'd had hoped either. Right. So, Fran, would it be fair for me to say that 
they actually so that they do actually want to integrate into mm, society again yeah. I, I share your concern with that choice of words <laughs> yeah. but but i think we all understand that the idea and yet they find themselves not doing that because of the barriers that are put in mm. their way. So it, it's mm. not a deliberate choice to remain no. in a Chinese group, but in fact mm. it's because of the barriers that are put there. I would, I would, I would think so. Yeah. I mean, if you because looking at what they say before they come and then their experience after they come, it's mm. like we were going to do this and then it didn't happen because of this. So right. yeah, it's. It, I mean, it's both. Of course, it's sort of you can get demoralised, right? Like, yes. I mean, racism is another thing there. If 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 enough people swear at you in the street or ignore you in class or turn you you know ignore you when you send in a resume you get demoralized and you're going to look for social support where you can find it which may be yeah. with co-nationals so like mm. it's it's kind of both but yeah I, I think generally it's a response to social exclusion I would, i'd put it that way mm. so Fran, i'm not sure if this follows naturally from your research mm. or not but are you confident in giving us some perhaps some policy prescriptions in terms of what mm. universities and the australian government mm. might do to make sure these students' mm. expectations of being integrated in society yeah, can yeah. actually be realised? Yeah, gee, that's that's a great question. I mean, and I'm, I'm going, as part of my study, I will formulate um, a report at the end which will be made public and will be, you know, a systematic answer to that question. Well, can I just bag yeah. you for the in- interview yeah. after the report's released? Because we'd love to have you back on the podcast to talk <laughs> yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But, I mean, I think I do have, I mean, at the moment I'm formulating ideas along those lines. Mm. And there's a few. I mean, I think universities actually have kind of an ethical responsibility to do more than they're doing. And this could take the form of, and some universities do this, for example, a buddy system. Like what if each new student who came in was paired up with somebody who'd been in that institution a bit longer and you could pair up international students, either with local students, with other international Mm, students, with mm. whoever, just to give them a chance to form a relationship with somebody outside of their circle. And I think students would appreciate that. They tell me that they would. Um, In terms, I mean, there's all kinds of things we could think about in terms of language training as well. Some students, when I wrote, well, this kind of came up as an issue in the media last year, I think, because of the English schools being subject now to greater regulation um, of, of the students that they're training in English. So we discussed this in my research group and students were raising the idea that maybe there could be degree specific English training. So if you're going to study engineering, you're going to need certain kinds of English. If you're studying arts, you'll need another kind. If you're studying, you know, finance, it's another kind. So rather than the IELTS test, which is pretty broad and not very useful, they think, um, better English would help everybody. So maybe degree specific English training could could be something that could be done. Yeah, and probably a whole range of sort of other things might be done by universities, by government. Um, to to assist this kind of so-called integration that you know mm, that they're keen mm. for. I mean, I do I do feel that um, what I raised before this issue of on one hand the graduate working visa being offered, and it really is offered kind of as a draw card to 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 hold up, you know, the income from international education. So the government says, okay, you can come here and we'll give you an opportunity to work. On the other hand, the reality is that professional workplaces are not. I mean, they're allowed to say we won't take international students as interns or as employees. Mm. To me, that's a bit of a contradiction. And it's yeah. a little bit, I don't want to say it's in bad faith, but it's a little bit tricky. Yes, yeah, <laughs> right? yeah understood, understood. So I just wonder if that maybe needs some attention as well. Mm, okay. All right, friend, let me um, 
let me finish this up by asking you another question that you specifically deal with in your research, and that's about how Chinese students engage with media mm. while they're in Australia, both Chinese and Australian media. And this is a topic that gets a lot of attention mm. in Australia. For example, one of the claims is that the Chinese government influence on Chinese students in Australia can be very strong mm. because they're kept in these groups um, where they're only listening to Chinese language media in Australia and a lot of that Chinese language mm. media is controlled or heavily influenced mm. by the Chinese government. Mm. Mm. So can you tell us a bit about, um, you know, to what extent Chinese state media or Chinese mm. language media mm -hmm. generally in Australia mm. has a part to play in, mm. these, in the student experience while yeah. they're in Australia? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think that's a really good question because as we know today in the era of, you know, ubiquitous broadband connect connectivity and the ability to access all kinds of media from anywhere in the world almost. That is the case. You know, you can, you can be in Australia and you can continue to consume media from China if you want to. Mm -hmm. um, so I would say in terms of students' media worlds, which is something I've looked at in detail and in depth, it's right to say that, that is those worlds, those media worlds or mediascapes, if you like, are dominated by Chinese language media. But that's not the same thing as saying it's Chinese state media. So okay. it's not like these students wake up every morning and check out the People's Daily or something. <laughs> Does anyone actually I don't do that? No, no, I'm not sure. Unless you're um, a Chinese government official, yeah, I'm, maybe, I'm maybe sure they do. some people do. Uh, but these students are not doing that. They're they're opening, they're turning on their phone and looking at WeChat or sometimes Weibo or or QQ or whatever. So these are forms of new social media. Now the content in those, this this is an interesting point. Um, WeChat is currently the biggest one, as far as I can see from my group and the other and the other people that I know in the Chinese student community. It's true to say that this is Chinese-owned media. Therefore, to the extent that it's regulated, it's regulated from the China end. Mm. So there are certain topics that must be avoided, and people that read this and people that write for this, including the students themselves who do write for it sometimes for local Australian content, um, they know that they can't broach these topics. Mm. But that absolutely is different from saying that it's trumpeting a kind of Beijing line. It's not. The kinds of discussions that people have and read on public accounts on WeChat are largely, while they're here, are largely about um, domestic Australian and local kind of life in Australian cities. Right, right. And it's not political like it's kind of um, you know all, all kinds of daily life information some of it, a lot of it is drawn from Australian newspapers and translated so I mean I guess looking at that so you're on a, on, a, on a tram in Melbourne looking over someone's shoulder and you see that she's reading this stuff that looks like Chinese media you might think oh that must be you know communist brainwashing but yeah. no it's probably like an article about where to get a particular kind of food or something or you know it's in Chinese but it's about the local scene in Melbourne yes, so right, okay. I mean that's a really important distinction to make I think um, having said that I we rightly could have some concerns about that media world in the sense that as I said a moment ago the regulation of the content there happens to the extent that it happens at all, which is would be simply from things being deleted if they touch mm. on sensitive topics. That happens from the China side. It doesn't happen from the Australian side. Yes. And from what I can see and from what I read, because I subscribe to these news accounts myself, some of the information in those accounts is very suspect. Yes, right. Not politically, but just factually. Like, okay. it's, like, it's, like <laughs> it's like taking the worst of the tabloid sometimes, sensationalising it another 20%. And then giving it to people. So it's not fact-checked often. It's not necessarily subject to Australian regulations, say, against racial vilification or yes. other or other okay. things. Mm. So 
I'm, I'm a little worried about students being vulnerable to like misinformation through just poor media ethics. Mm. In, but this is in reporting local news, in reporting mm. Australian news. Not in, it's nothing to do with necessarily Chinese politics. It's, it's more, are they getting a good account of what's going on locally through WeChat news? And mm. I, they sometimes do, sometimes it's okay, but I'm, I'm not always sure that it's the best. To finish off, um, readers who are interested in, re in your research, um, what have you got coming out soon? Mm, okay. I would direct such readers to um, my project website, first of all, where I put up new research that comes out. So that's www.mobileselves.org, O-R-G. Um, and I think the next thing that is coming out will be an article in the Journal of Intercultural Studies, which is um, a special co-edited issue. And that is a piece on my research participants' um, intimate lives and relationships while they're and their and their view of the gendered life course while they're in Australia. And that should be coming out later this year, I think. Fran, I've got to say, ethnographic research sounds a lot more stimulating than economic <laughs> research, which is what I spend my days doing. It is. It is very, very fun and interesting. I, I must say, yeah. Fran, Mun, thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks, James. If you enjoyed this episode, you might want to revisit an earlier episode of the ACRI podcast titled Chinese Students in Australia that featured Professor Wan Ning Sun of UTS. In that episode, we discussed Wan Ning's work with Chinese student focus groups, the challenges faced by Chinese students and their instructors in Australian universities, and how these challenges may be addressed. Our next episode will feature Philip Ivanov, CEO of the Asia Society Australia. He'll be joining me to talk about the recently released report, Leading for Change, a blueprint for cultural diversity and inclusive leadership revisited, published by the Australian Human Rights Commission in collaboration with the University of Sydney Business School, the Committee for Sydney and the Asia Society of Australia. We'll also discuss how culturally diverse leadership of our institutions might impact on Australia's China policy. You can subscribe to the ACRI podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud or listen to all our episodes on our website, australiachinarelations.org. There you'll also find out more about ACRI's research and events. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ACRI underscore UTS and on LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.